Welcome to the Galaxy Moonbeam Night Site. We are the Retro Talk Network, where we talk about anything having to do with nostalgia, radio, television, movies. If you plugged it in, turned it on, listened to it, or watched it, we talk about it right here. I'm Ian. I'm Smitty. I'm Mike. And by the way, we uh, you know we are on email. We got the website. We got Facebook. We got bells that jingle, jangle, jingle here. Galaxy Moonbeam Night Sight at gmail.com. The website, galaxymoonbeamnightsight.com. And we're on Facebook as well. So visit the Galaxy Moonbeam Night Sight page on Facebook. Now, I've given you a lot of things here, so pay close attention because I'm going to be giving you a test later. <laughs> <laughs> Friends, ask us if you're a Facebook fan and join us on our page. Would you please? We'd appreciate that. We're going to launch our show with this. Now, you know, the final three months of the year include Halloween, Thanksgiving, and Christmas. And they also include Peanuts. Gilbert Smith is here with the old shell game. <laughs> I had to get that in. Ah, uh, you had to. Ian. Well, we're talking about, see if everybody recognizes this music. Yes, that's right. Ian, I thought it would be fun to look at the Peanuts specials that have aired on TV during the last quarter of each year for many years now. The shows are familiar to most of us, and we have grown up with them through the years. I still enjoy watching them to this day. The three shows are It's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown, A Charlie Brown Thanksgiving, and A Charlie Brown Christmas. Charlie Brown, Linus, Lucy, Sally, and all the gang were the creation of Charles M. Schultz. In 1950, Schultz began his comic strip called Peanuts. Even though all the characters were children, their vocabularies were very advanced, and the everyday situations they found themselves in were not just those that children would be in, but indeed situations that some grown-ups might face as well. As the years went by, Schultz developed his characters and the situations and recurring themes that they found themselves in. The comic strip, now distributed by United Features Syndicate, was being printed in a growing number of newspapers. And by 1952, the addition of a Sunday strip added to the comic's popularity. Such recurring themes as Charlie Brown's baseball team that always lost and Lucy pulling the football away from Charlie Brown at the last moment were well-received and appreciated by readers all over the country. Schultz's artistry of the Peanuts strip was utter simplicity. The uncomplicated drawings, the simple construction of each scene, either in a head-on view or a side view, made for an easy-to-read and easy-to-understand strip. The wording was very expressive, communicating very simply the thoughts and words of the characters. In the early 50s, Schultz began what would be a diversification of his comic strip into other areas other than just a comic strip. First to come was a book of Peanuts comic strips called, simply enough, Peanuts. The book sold very well, and a couple of years later, a second book titled More Peanuts was released. These were the first books in a long line of compilations that were released. Eventually, Charles Schultz took advantage of the marketing possibilities for his Peanuts characters. In the years to come, all sorts of items, from plastic dolls to lunchboxes, plush characters, wristwatches, and blankets, just to name a few, were being produced. Advertisers soon approached United Features Syndicate about incorporating the Peanuts gang in advertising campaigns. Schultz was very selective about which products he would approve of. In 1955, the Peanuts characters were featured by Kodak in their instruction manuals for their cameras. In 1961, the Ford Motor Company featured the Peanuts gang in a big promotion highlighting their new line of Ford Falcons. 
The Peanuts gang was also featured in the opening of The Ford Show, starring Tennessee Ernie Ford on NBC television. The characters were seen in an opening vignette and during commercials. In 1964, television producer Lee Mendelson approached Schultz with the idea of doing a documentary about Peanuts. Schultz was interested, and they began working on the project. At almost that same time, Mendelssohn was approached by the Coca-Cola Company about making a Peanuts Christmas special for the following year of 1965. Mendelssohn's response to Coca-Cola was enthusiastic, and he agreed. After he told Schultz that he had sold the show to Coca-Cola, Schultz and Mendelssohn created the outline for the show in just one day. Schultz hired animator Bill Melendez, who had worked on the Ford show animating the Peanuts characters. Briefly, the story revolves around Charlie Brown, who is feeling depressed even though Christmas will arrive soon and the talk is of presents, tree decorating, and receiving and sending cards. After having no success in directing a a school Christmas play and getting a scrawny little Christmas tree for which he is ridiculed by the other kids, Charlie Brown asks in desperation if anyone there can tell him what Christmas is all about. Linus says that he can tell Charlie Brown what the true meaning of Christmas is, and he recites verses 8 through 14 from the second chapter of Luke. After Linus concludes, Charlie Brown realizes that he must not let commercialism ruin his Christmas and that he must focus on the true meaning of the season. Now, back to the creation of this program. There were challenges ahead. Schultz, Mendelssohn, and Melendez had a very small budget to work with. The program would air on CBS, and the network wanted to use adult actors to voice the characters, and they wanted to add a laugh track to the show. Schultz disagreed and got his way, the show being voiced by children and no dreaded laugh track. CBS further had reservations about Linus reading a verse from the Bible. Schultz argued that the show was about the true meaning of Christmas, and if that scene was deleted, it would destroy the meaning of the show. Schultz won his case, also fighting the network about the use of jazz music in the soundtrack played by the Vince Guaraldi trio. Melendez was concerned about some technical issues that the Finnish program had, Among those concerns were some bad musical cues and choppy animation. Schultz wanted the program left alone. CBS Network Brass expected the program to be a failure. On Thursday, December 9, 1965, a Charlie Brown Christmas debuted in Gilligan's Island regular time slot. The program was an immediate hit. Over half of the televisions in use in the United States were tuned in. Audiences appreciated the simple message that Christmas is more than commercialism and materialism, and that it has a much more profound true meaning. In contrast to what the television executives thought, the program was a great success. A Charlie Brown Christmas aired on CBS television from 1965 to 2000, and since 2001 it has aired on ABC TV. In 1966, it's The Great Pumpkin Charlie Brown debuted, and in 1973, A Charlie Brown Thanksgiving was seen for the first time. These shows are now a yearly tradition for kids and grown-ups alike. Schultz, Mendelssohn, and Melendez worked together for 30 years, producing over 40 television specials in that time period. Other Peanuts specials deal with Valentine's Day, Easter, and various other historical and notable events. As a kid, I loved watching the Peanuts specials. In particular, I would enjoy the Halloween, Thanksgiving, and Christmas shows. Even to this day, I watch them. I have these shows on DVD. It brings back a lot of good memories of watching them in my early years, and the stories are so simple and entertaining they hold up very well, even if you've seen these shows hundreds of times. Charles Schultz passed away on February 12, 2000, the same day his last original Sunday Peanuts strip ran. He left us a legacy of humorous and touching comic strips and television programs that will live on forever. If you have any memories of watching any of the Peanuts specials, send us a note here at Galaxy Moonbeam Nightside and tell us about it. 
We would love to hear your memories. Ian, Mike, back to you guys. Yeah, I have a memory about it. How about Snoopy versus the Red Baron? Yes, that was a... Uh... Snoopy had visions of being a World War I flying ace and shooting down the Red Baron. That was a recurring theme, yeah, <laughs> it was. He'd get on top of his doghouse and have air battles with the uh, Red Baron. And this led, I think, to at least one or maybe two hit records. Remember that? Yes, I do. Yeah. Something about Snoopy and 10, the Red 20, 30, 40, 50 or more. The bloody Red Baron had rolled up the score. 80 men died, tried to end that spree of the bloody Red Baron. We'll, we'll have to ask our good friend Mike Zaccaro when he's on the show again about <laughs> that song. Well. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. But, yeah, yeah when he's on there. But anyway, so some memories there of, of Charlie Brown and the, the Peanuts gang. and uh, Charlie Brown, the over-trusting guy, is he still trusting... What's her name to hold the football? He's so still, he yes, he's still <laughs> trusting Lucy to not pull the football away. But, of course, you know what will yeah, happen there. Uh, so That was all too close to home for me. That's probably why I didn't watch those. Did, I watched the first one, and then I cowered. Oh. Well, I was going to say, you two were probably a little bit older when these shows first came out. They we probably, were. did they? I had the, did, I had the uh, Shockwave golf shirt, Charlie Brown. Did had. you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and not knowing that it resembled that, I wore it to school one day, and from then on, oh, no. I was uh, degraded and humiliated. And, Mike, I understand Ian has the pictures, and for a small amount, he will sell you the negatives back. <laughs> yes, he will. <laughs> I'll, wear my shock, I'll wear my shockwave Charlie Brown shirt when I take Ian over to his uh, shock treatment. <laughs> That's right. You do that on 30th and El Cajon Boulevard. Yes. Ooh. Okay. No hats. Uh, uh, yeah, no hats. Anyways, talking about hats and heads and hair, Mike, we're going to turn it over to you. You're going to talk to us about hair tonics and greasy kids stuff. What's all that about? Hair tonics, greasy kid stuff. I I was driving around a, an industrial area last week, and I, you you ever take a whiff of something and it brings you back? It's almost it takes you in a time warp, and you can't quite remember what it was from. Well, this was a chemical plant, and I don't know what they were processing, but it was pretty strong stuff as ammonia. And I thought about all those afternoons when my mom and my grandmothers would treat their hair with this stuff. It was a it was a putrid stench. It was chemicals, and I'm sure none of them fall within the guidelines of federal EPA standards nowadays. But in the 1950s and 60s, there were concoctions, the Tony, and uh, jars of chemicals that would be mixed together in the sink. And my mom and my grandmother, my aunts, usually on a Saturday, they'd get ready for the weekend, and they would sit one down, put a dish towel around around them, and put this stuff in their hair. And uh, it, it made your eyes tear, and your your throats choke, your nostrils would scream for oxygen. And no, we didn't live on a pig farm. No, we were a gas leak in the house. We were we were doing the lady, the family, the lady's hair for the for weekend for church. I, I had this vision of one of these concoctions actually emerging and, and you know, exhibiting a life. And oh, one, yeah. one of your relatives running out of the house going, it's alive, it's alive, oh, it's sure. alive. You'd have the hazmat trucks outside nowadays, stuff like that coming out there, or the, uh, the methamphetamine squad shutting down the place. Uh, it would be part of those horror movies that we keep talking about, these, them, and those. These, them, and those, and <laughs> the ones that should have been them. But, uh, yeah, like my mom, and I, I didn't have sisters, but I had aunts and grandmothers, and they, they had to go through a, a chemical process, a literal chemical process, to get a true permanent wave in their hair. This was before blow dryers and super hot curling irons, and the result never seemed to turn out how they wanted it to. Remember the, the, the blue-haired ladies? Oh, yeah. And the stink lingered for oh, hours yeah, in the house. Yeah. So you had to open and air yeah. the house out. It was, Truth be told, I've had my experience with airplane glue before Tulane was outlawed, but uh, 
this stuff was just, it was amazingly putrid. Yes. And it would smell, and it would smell on the ladies even after they washed it all out. Guys, on the other hand, there were no styles. There were two styles, the flat top and the butch. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this was before your time, Smitty. Yeah, but not time. yours, Ian. <laughs> Ian remembers Ian both. had both. <laughs> well, there was three. There was the pompadour, the butch, and the flat top. Now, the butch and the flat top are different. Actually, the butch, and you know, they, they are, there is a slight difference between them, right? Do you know what they are? Uh, the but we, I can tell you what they are. Um, the <laughs> From personal experience, Ian? Yes. I can just the see Ian with a pompadour. Top, the flat top <laughs> looks like... She lives down the street. She houses the kids when they come by on the bikes. <laughs> the flat top will remind you of the landing deck of an aircraft Correct. Carrier. Very good. You should land, land planes on okay. it. The other one is kind of like a contoured. Well, hairstyles for men and boys in the 50s were a little less complicated for the most part than, than what I just told you about that chemical reaction story about ladies. At least men's styles were simple. They killed a widespread conception that the crew cut and the flat top were the same thing. They weren't. A crew cut is like a military cut. Every hair on the head is the same length. And that's coming back. And in cases such as myself, they're the same length because there is no length. Me too. A flat top is a crew cut length on the sides, but longer on the top. There's the difference. The eraser head look. Yeah, that's right. So there you have it, Ian. Now you can go and get a crew cut no more. A ducktail was very popular for the bad boy wannabes, like the Fonz on Happy Days. Now let's talk about the pompadour. Also known as the Tony Soprano Silvio, the guy Steve Van Zandt, also known as the Helmet. Made famous by Ron Burgundy. Now, do you know a pompadour, the kind of stuff you had to put in the pompadour to keep it going? Well, it had to be some kind of pomade. Were you a, were you a pompadour guy, Ian? No, but I saw them, and um, they look kind of... Uh, there's a little flare at the front, like a little ball of hair on the top. A little ball of hair on the front, okay. There was a famous actor who uh, personified the pompadour, and I can't think of his name right now. He was um, hmm, early 50s, ring a bell. Liberace? No, no. I think Liberace wore it. Lots of wavy hair like Liberace. (laughs) Okay. Sandman. Yes, Ian. And of course. Bring me a treat. Okay. The thing is, the the funniest thing these days is to look at copies of the Maverick TV series. Okay. And to watch Jack Jack, Kelly. Jack Kelly, who's portraying a, a, a personage of the 1870s or 80s. Wearing a pompadour from the 1950s. <laughs> How did we get this far with this subject? How we got this far was I've been watching Mad Men on AMC. It, it's a series, a TV series, about the advertising industry in the early 60s. What this segment, what this bit was originally going to be about was the men's hair cream, hair tonic wars. But it looks like we've gone off astray. It looks like we've had a couple of hairs go It's kind astray. of mutated. Yes, it's mutated. <laughs> it seems to have, to have been victim of a chemical reaction. But we can talk really quick. There were there were several brand names, but there was a hair tonic, hair cream war, Ian. We had Command, Butch Wax. Remember Butch Wax? No. Horrible stuff. It was candle wax for your head. Ooh. I, I was forced to wear that on a hot, smoggy day in Los Angeles. When you're in the second or third grade with a half a jar of Butch Wax in your hair, it's talk about mutation. Mm. Yeah. Bad stuff. And it, it was wax. It was patrol. Wow. It was... Take Vaseline, color it pink, and put a little perfume in there, and you got butch wax. I even had a butch wax applicator. It would administer the proper dosage of butch wax on the comb part, and you'd put it through your hair. Wow. And you had this stuff. 
this wax on your head all day long, and I think that's probably why I've become follically challenged in my later years. Maybe the same thing happened to me. I used to put all kinds of weird things in my hair. My dad used to use Vitalis. Vitalis was <laughs> and then, next. And then I was using Vitalis, and then I was actually even trying to get by cheap. I would get Vaseline in my fingers and thin it out and rub it through my hair. Oh, cut it down a little. Cut huh? it down a little, Very yeah. Very good. Yeah. Anyway, so just... Well, I remember Butch Wax. I recall Butch Wax very well. But there was something even before my time, uh, not quite before Ian's time, Somewhere between Ian, my, Ian and Mike, hmm. it was called Brill Cream. Mm-hmm. A little dabble, do you? Right. Oh, I can sing the jingle for you if you like. Do you remember the puppets on the black and, on the TV commercials? Yes, Brill Cream. A little dabble, do you? Use more, only if you dare. But watch out, the gals will all pursue you. They love to get their fingers in your hair. Maybe I wasn't using enough dabs because I didn't have all those gals pursuing me. Yeah. They, they seem to be running the other way. I thought it was the butch wax melting <laughs> off my head. Oh. But then again, does anybody remember Alberto Veal 5? Yes. yes. That was interesting because yes. men and women could use right. it. Right. My mother used to use it. My mom used it, and it was in a tube, and mm-hmm. that's when they had the beehives, the big bouffants, the mm. Dusty Springfield look, the uh, Edie Gourmet look, the helmet. And I remember when I was in elementary school, I remember my mom getting me ready to go to school, and she dabbed some Alberto Veal 5 in my hair with a little bit of water. And she'd comb my hair, and she'd send me off to school. You don't forget the smell of that stuff. No, and actually no. smelled pretty good. You know, you'll be you'll be seventy good. years old if yeah. you ever walk by somewhere that would have. Do they the, even make Alberto Vio? I don't anymore? think so. Okay. I, I think right. that it's uh, been reclassified as a secret a component to a secret thermonuclear weapon. <laughs> Another interesting day, a hot summer day with a head full of Vo five. Yeah, you did not want to get near an open flame. Mm-mm. Uh, Brill Cream and then Butch Wax. Then they start getting fancy. They had one called Command, and that's very studly, very manly in the 60s. But the best one, and Ian probably remembers the pitch lady for this, Top Brass. Top Brass. Was by Barbara Felder. Very good. He's my guy. And what was she doing when she pitched? She was on top of a bear rug. Was she growling? And she was going, you know, the, the, uh, the Brand X promotes dandruff. And she'd scratch the bear's head and dandruff would pop up. Have Isn't I got that, that right? You got it right. <laughs> He's dead on. He wins the other prize. The Diet Coke, case of Diet Coke goes the other way okay, on this show. All right. Okay. And by the way, while we're at it, whatever happened to Barbara Feldman anyway? Uh, I don't know. She's still around, of course, made famous with Maxwell Smart. Yeah. But I don't know what happened. I, I know her as uh, the Get Smart mm-hmm. and Top Brass, and that's it. Yeah, we'll have to look Where her up. Is Bar- Any listeners out there know? Give us an email. Check in. In the meantime, we will post on our website the Brill Cream YouTube commercial as well as the one for Command. And you'll see the war going on. The Command was more of the secret agent, the James Bond, wear this stuff on your head, get beautiful women, and, and kill commies for mommy. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, nuclear secrets. Yet oh, you go over to Brill Cream, and that was the stuff you'd use on Saturday nights when you decided you wanted to be a chick magnet. Right. Hmm. Interesting stuff, but uh, Men and Skin Bracer, we'll have a whole show next time on Aftershaves. Old Spice. There you go. You know, that stuff's coming back, Old Spice means quality, said the captain to the bosun. Ask for the package with the ship that sails the ocean. What did the captain say to the cabin boy? (laughs) I don't have a clue. I don't don't want to go there. No Old Spice. Okay. Hey, Young Spice. Okay, well, that's it. 
All right. Thanks, Mike. Very okay. good. Thank you for refreshing our memory. Uh, on we that didn't get anywhere with that one, but we had some fun. We had what some happened? fun, and that's the main part. Okay. We're going to pause right now for our retro commercial, and then we'll be back with more of GalaxyMoonbeamNightSight.com. And here is a fun retro commercial that everybody will remember. What do you want when you gotta eat something? It's gotta be sweet, and it's gotta be a lot, and you gotta have it now. What do you want? Nick, mac and whip, back and tiny, black and ink and nap and drill, black and brown, black and black and jack and blue, You know, I heard, I saw something in, I think it was a magazine about Cracker Jack. I believe they were launched in 1908, connected to sports, of course. Right. And they and, and initially they were launched with a prize, so they've been giving you that cheap little prize ever since. Well, <laughs> yeah, 1908, okay. I, I remember it went back that it, it was... You a, remember back then in, in, in 1908, Mike? Well, yes, I do. <laughs> As a matter of fact. I've got a pocket full of Honus Wagner trading cards if you're so interested. There you go. Yes, I might be. Uh, Cracker Jack was actually produced for baseball games. It wasn't sold on the shelves, was it? No, it wasn't. And everybody remembers that jingle, and you also probably remember Jack Guilford, who always played the adult. In this particular case, uh, this is another TV soundtrack. He was playing a, a vendor at a concession stand, and he always was in those commercials, the late Jack Guilford. We should do a piece on Jack Guilford yeah. later mm-hmm. on. Good character actor. Good character actor. Jack Guilford, Dabs Greer. You know Give Dabs Greer. Sure. We've got one coming up on characters. Yeah, anyway, on, uh, on, uh, on character we'll do a little more lip-smacking, paddy-whacking. Paddy-whacking, give your dog a bone. Mm. Okay. Anyway, okay, welcome back to Galaxy Moonbeam Nightside. And now, he was there at the dawn of automation, radio automation, that is, Radio man Ian Rose looks back. You could call it uh, robot radio. The dawn of radio automation is also the dawning of the age of Aquarius. <laughs> they were both taking us to new dimensions, the fifth and otherwise, pardon the pun. Anyway, would you believe that it was, I was in Fresno, that I took part in automated radio nearly 40 years ago? But before we look at radio with a robot's attitude, let's look at how it started. Handmade radio. That's what I'm talking about. Before we got into automated radio, is what the sound of this turned into. Before there was automation, there was digital. And before there was tape, there was radio. You ran it by hand, certainly more than one hand, maybe two hands, maybe more than one person. Unless you were in a big city, with your own engineer, that is, a tech man, you ran your own board. That is to say, you ran your own controls. And I remember my first day at work, the boss said to me, Check the instruments. And I replied, well, they all seem to be there. I promise. That's the last of my jokes. You know, when you ran your own board, nothing would start records, commercials, jingles, unless and until you started them. And that's what I did. On the on-air studio, your average radio station had a couple of turntables, a place to park your announcements, both commercial and public service, and compartments to keep your records. This was all surrounding a control panel where a VU meter ran, measuring the volume. There were uh, dials to turn the volume up and down. 
These dials or potentiometers or pots were later replaced by sliders. Now, the records themselves, 45s back in those days, were in compartments in bins, and they rotated. There would be more than one stack of records rotating. The more popular the record, the faster it would rotate. These records were picked according to surveys. Specifically, when a record came up, you put it on a turntable, queued it up. That is, you move the needle to the beginning of the music and held onto the record. And then when you wanted to play it, you let it go, and it, and it landed on the turntable, and away we went. And, of course, if there was a little musical bridge in the front, you could talk over it, unless somebody was singing, and at that point you had to shut up. Anyway, if you were running a show in the evening, as I did, you'd probably have a network news at the top of the hour, and, and it always started on time, right to the second. So you have to learn to back time. Now, play along with me here, if you would. If you have three and a half minutes before the hour, uh, you need a three and a half minute record. So if you have one, what time do you start it? You start it at mm, 56.30, right, gang? And as the record is ending, you can mention your name, give a time check, a station ID, and then open the gate for the network news. The network news plays for five minutes, and you come out of it with the local news and traffic and weather and a forecast, which you always kept simple. Keep it simple, stupid. Because the only thing people really want to know, I was told, is, is it going to rain tomorrow? That's all they want to know, yes or no. Anyway, there were rules according to the late master programmer himself, Bill Drake, on running commercial stop-downs. You would play a record and then stop down for two commercials and no more. It would either be a 60 or a 30 or two 30s. You limited that break to two ads. If you played too many ads, you'd lose listeners. Also, you basically had three announcements you delivered, commercials, promos, and PSAs. It was a good idea to pre-read those commercials. After all, somebody was paying for them. So you wanted to get that information right. Promos were promotional, that is, announcements for the station. That is, you could be plugging someone else's show or a special show itself coming up in the days ahead. That's a promo. And then there were the PSAs, or the public service announcements. These are for nonprofit organizations, charity organizations. Usually these announcements were short. In every instance, these announcements had to be logged, all of them. And along the way, you can tell some jokes or do tell some interesting stories as part of your show. So with the advent of surveys, music rotations, you just played one record after another as they were chosen. Again, those records were chosen according to surveys. Once upon a time, music was chosen a different way. Music was picked according to its popularity. Now, you would rotate records this way. This was in the, way back in the early days. You had four categories, male, female, group, and instrumental, and that's exactly how you rotated the music. It was time when instrumentals got a lot of airplay. Uh, they were not all that popular generally at any time, but they were getting 25% of the airtime. <laughs> there was a downside to this. They were also used to make up time. So if you were running late, you threw in an instrumental, played a bit of it, and that was the end of that. So how radio ran until automation came along is what you just heard. I heard automated radio while I was in the Army, believe it or not. Armed Forces Radio ran it in 1969 in Europe using the punch card method. A few years later, I went to Fresno. Now, here's how the Fresno automation was executed. It worked on a system of thumb wheels. You would set up elements by picking numbers on a thumb wheel. Let's say you wanted to start the hour with music. So you picked a number of a reel-to-reel tape deck, and you punched that number up. So at the top of the hour, the system clicked it over to the number with a tape deck with the music on it, and that would play through. When it got to the end of the music, there was a tone, and it would move on to the next element. Sometimes that next element would be a voice track with your voice on it. 
and uh, so on and so forth. And then the other things would click in with this. Uh, commercials, for example. We had commercials on reel-to-reel, and we also had them on cartridges, similar to the 8-track tapes. That's what carts look like. And anyway, the music was in rotation, just like when radio was done by hand, the same as when it was automated. And sometimes you made up these reels yourself. Uh, the, sometimes you purchased them from a syndicator. The voice track was also recorded at the studio, usually within hours of the airtime. It had to be because uh, the information was perishable. Yes, there were commercials, and uh, as we mentioned, and we had that spot machine, and you had a... Actually, you had one machine where you had commercials with little windows that would count off the windows and numbers and then cue itself up to where the commercials were. That's the gist of it. One more thing. Would you believe our automation system actually had a panic button? Yes, it, it did. When something went wrong, you hit the panic button, the system would stop for five seconds, and then move on to the next element. I left this FM after a year in 1973 for more money at another station in another California city. Now, from then on, I wouldn't run into automated radio again for many years. It was out there, but not everybody wanted to use it back then. Somehow there was something about wanting to do everything live. That attitude has changed now. More and more radio stations are automated. Their morning shows generally are live, but the rest of the day is recorded, with some notable exceptions. So the robots have largely taken over, but not completely. The robots are taking over. Would Isaac Asimov be proud, hmm? I'm Ian Rose. Thanks, Ian. What an interesting piece. Radio has changed tremendously uh, since those days. wonder if there's any of those carts still available. You know, they're very difficult to find as far as collectible nostalgia because yeah. they were reused over and over again. Right. When the station went kaput, they threw them under the dumpster. They were, that was the first thing to be thrown away. Yeah, so. yeah, and acetates. Oh. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, good work, Ryan. Yeah, thanks, uh, Ian. Ian. Good stuff. Uh, and we are not automated, which means we got to wrap this show up That's pretty right. quick, or yeah. we're going to go over, and then the uh, the red phone will start ringing, and it'll be Bill Drake telling us, uh, "Why do you have dead air?" Yeah. And <laughs> Well, that's an old Bill Drake joke, isn't and then, it? And then in the next sentence, you say you've lost your job. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, the boss radio called me, and because uh, he's the boss, I'm no longer... <laughs> I'm no longer on the radio. Anyway, thanks a lot, folks, for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Galaxy Moonbeam Night Sight. You can always find us at our website, galaxymoonbeamnightsight.com. That's galaxymoonbeamnightsight.com. Emails are very welcome. We love those emails. Tells us how to direct future shows. You can email us at galaxymoonbeamnightsight at gmail.com, galaxymoonbeamnightsight at gmail.com. Come over and visit us. Friend us. We need friends. Please be my friend on Facebook. Facebook. Galaxy Moonbeam Nightsight. Who knew? (laughs) Galaxy Moonbeam Nightsight is our Facebook friend name. And uh, on behalf of the gang, I'm Mike. I'm Smitty. And I'm Ian. And on behalf of the gang, <laughs> we thank you again for <laughs> stopping by and listening to us. And uh, check out future shows and keep those emails coming. We're really encouraged. We're coming up on well over, uh, well, over 30 episodes We're over 30 now. episodes. We're on our way to our 40th. Almost a year old. Almost a year old. Ready too. to ride a tricycle. Just about. Okay. Thanks again. Come join us.